Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts. And on today's episode, we'll first hear a conversation between John Wilsey, affiliate scholar of theology and history for the Acton Institute, and Alan Gelzo, professor of the Civil War era at Gettysburg College, where he also serves as the director of the Civil War era studies program. John and Alan will be speaking about Reconstruction in the South after the Civil War in preparation for Alan's upcoming lecture event here at the Acton Institute on Abraham Lincoln's Moral Constitution. You can register for this event at actonacton.org slash events. Then on Upstream, Jordan Baller speaks with Robert Nelson, professor at the School of Public Policy in Maryland, about the new Paul Schrader film, First Reformed. So stay tuned for that and more here on Radio Free Acton. I'm John Wilsey, and I am affiliate scholar in theology and history for the Acton Institute. And I also teach at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, uh, teach church history there. And um, I'm here with Professor Alan Gelzo. Um, Professor Gelzo is the Director of Civil War Era Studies and is the Henry, Henry R. Luce Professor of the Civil War Era at Gettysburg College. Professor Gelzo uh, recently was one of the three recipients of the 2018 Bradley Prize. Um, he received that prize just a few weeks ago. And um, Dr. Gelzo is also uh, a winner of the Lincoln Prize multiple times. He is the author of several um, very excellent books. I don't have time to go through the list, but let me just name a couple. He won a Lincoln Prize for Redeemer President, in two, uh, Abraham Lincoln Redeemer President in 2000. It was uh, published by Urban's excellent religious biography of uh, our 16th president. And also notably enough, he um, wrote a fantastic history of the Battle of Gettysburg, which appeared on the hundred in the hundred and fiftieth anniversary, uh, called Gettysburg: The Last Invasion, which was on the New York Times bestseller list for eight weeks. Um, Professor Gelzo uh, has a list of achievements and accomplishments that is is very very long, and all of those achievements and awards and prizes are deeply deeply deserved and appreciated. Uh, and it is my pleasure and my honor to be having a conversation today with Professor Gelzo. Uh, in preparation for uh, a lecture that he is going to give at the Acton Institute here in Grand Rapids on August the 9th, and he will be speaking as part of the Acton Lecture Series uh, on that day. Today we're going to be talking about uh, Professor Gelza's book, uh, his new book that has come out just a, a couple of months ago called Reconstruction, A Concise History. And so our uh, Time today will be spent talking primarily about uh, this new book that uh, Professor Gelzo has produced, but also keeping in mind that he is going to be um, uh, addressing uh, the Acton Institute on August the 9th. Professor Gelzo, welcome. Well, thank you, John. It's good to be talking with you and through you to people associated with the Acton Institute there in Grand Rapids. I think I have more relatives from Grand Rapids and Michigan than almost any other state in the Union. <laughs> I have no relatives from here. So uh, between the two of us, we, we really balance each other out. <laughs> so it seems. So it seems. Professor Gelze, would you would you briefly explain uh, what was Reconstruction, how long did it last, and what were its effects? Reconstruction was, at its base, 
the effort to reintegrate the 11 states of the Southern Confederacy, which had broken away from the American Union in 1861 and triggered the Civil War, to bring them back into the Union. Uh, in the most obvious sense, that reintegration simply meant having those states once more send representatives and senators to Congress and, and submitting to the relevant national laws. But the real task of Reconstruction was never as easy as that sounds, because the federal government was determined to eliminate the root cause of secession, which was African-American slavery. And that meant dramatic changes in the economic and political world of the southern states. Eliminating slavery was easy enough. We did that through the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, and that was ratified eight months after the end of the Civil War in December of 1865. What was not easy was persuading white Southerners to accept the freed slaves as equal citizens um, and, and to turn away economically from the slave-based system of plantation agriculture, which was a kind of quasi-socialism, and to embrace what was then called free labor. I mean, today we would simply call it capitalism. And then above all, to create a new political leadership from the ranks of especially white Southern loyalists who had never served the Confederacy. Uh, to do that, Northern economic missionaries, who sometimes are disparaged as carpetbaggers, came as allies to these Southern loyalists. And of course, the freed slaves themselves would play a role in this. White Southerners had no choice but to accept their military defeat, but they resisted furiously the cultural and economic and political program that Congress wanted to mandate. Uh, Congress attempted to combat that resistance through four Reconstruction Acts in 1867 that imposed a small-scale military occupation of the southern states. And Congress also attempted to reorganize Southern politics in the former Confederate states. But they expected too much too fast. We often date Reconstruction from the end of the Civil War, from 1865 to 1877, when the last Reconstruction state government was overthrown. So the entire project really lasted only 12 years. Far, far too short a time to achieve the kinds of ambitious goals uh, with which Reconstruction was originally conceived. Uh, so tell us a little bit about, speak to um, the project of Reconstruction as a struggle about race, for example, um, and several other things as well. You, you make the point in your book that it's more than just a struggle about race. It's a struggle about several different things, federalism, oh, yeah. economics, yeah. the Constitution. Can you say yeah. a few things about how... Reconstruction is a multifaceted struggle. We often focus first on race in Reconstruction because having gone through the civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, which was sometimes called a second Reconstruction, and which was primarily about race and the struggle for equal rights for people of all races, uh, we tend to read that back into Reconstruction 
and we assume that the reconstruction, the first reconstruction from 1865 to 1877 must also have been primarily about race. Well, clearly race plays a, plays a major role in how we understand reconstruction between 1865 to 1877 because southern whites could not after the end of the civil war they could not reconcile themselves to recognizing black southerners as their equals much less as potential economic partners so the result was a return of black southerners to situations only little better than slavery and a shadow was thus thrown over the whole American experiment that all men are created equal. So race does play a significant role in undermining Reconstruction, but it plays that role because white Southerners use it, especially white Southern elites use it, to whip up the loyalties and the fervor and sometimes the frenzy, the violent frenzy of poor whites and use race as a way of signing up allies for opposing the overall project of Reconstruction, which involved more than just race. Mm. And as a project um, of obviously reconciling the states to the federal union, what does Reconstruction achieve with regards to that? Well, curiously, Southerners always claimed, and and a great many still do, if I can judge by my email queue when I hear from people, (laughs) not always complimentary, I'm sorry to say, Um, Southerners claimed that they fought the Civil War for states' rights, and you hear this frequently. I know many people who say this. I've read books that make this argument. In fact, John, nobody showed less respect for states' rights than the Confederate government. And that suggests that the whole appeal was a pretense from the start. I mean, what rights, really, what rights were Southerners demanding before the war except the right to hold slaves? And curiously, when it came to recovering runaway slaves, suddenly the very same Southern slaveholders who were crying about states' rights turned into the most flaming consolidated Federalists, wanting the federal government to intervene and take a role in the rendition of fugitive slaves trampling right across the state rights of northern states, which didn't want to have those runaways rendered back up to their slave-owning masters. Well, we're going we're gonna to close, but before we do, uh, Professor Gelzo, I want to um, sort of tease our listeners with, um, you know, some um, um, sort of whet their appetites for more and get them to come to your lecture on, uh, on August the 9th. Um, if I could ask you one last question in light of that, um, in light of Reconstruction and in light of your research from your book, um, who won the war? You know, John, civil wars are peculiar. Civil wars are always the most intractable, the least easily ended of all human conflicts. There are some places in the world where People have been fighting out the aftermaths and continuances of civil wars for hundreds of years. I mean, think about the Balkans. Mm, think about right, Bosnia. Right. So I'd have to say that the best answer to the question of who won the civil war is uh, it's too early to tell. <laughs> wow. Wow. It's, it's, I grew up in Georgia, as you know, we've talked about this a lot. But, um, you know, it, it, when I was growing up, I grew up under the shadow of 
the, the defeat of the Confederacy. And um, my, my grandparents especially talked about the Civil War as if it occurred uh, last week. Um, when, when Northerners come down to the South, uh, either to you know, move their homes down or just to visit, uh, they often are, uh, are really shocked at how much Southerners still talk about the war. You know, and um, oh, really, oh, that's that's true. And by yeah. contrast, now I am a Yankee. I am from Pennsylvania. I am from the heart of Yankee Land, and teach at Gettysburg College, a name which really does not resonate pleasantly with many Southerners. So, for me, my experience was entirely different. I mean, my grandmother knew about the Civil War, like your grandparents did, but my grandmother's experience of the Civil War was to have on Memorial Day old white-haired veterans of the Grand Army of the Republic, of the Union Army, come into school classrooms like her school, the George Clymer School in Philadelphia, and tell the northern side of the story as a struggle for liberty and freedom and equality, at which point we all said, okay, that's right. And then we went on and thought about other things. We didn't dwell on it. For northerners, for us Yankees, the Civil War was over and done. We won. That was the end. And we have been moving on for the last 150 years. And when we meet Southerners who talk about the Civil War as though it really had only ended yesterday, there's a certain puzzlement that enters in here. Like, well, don't you realize that was that was history in the most blatant sense of the term? That was uh, a long time ago and doesn't really have or shouldn't have a lot of connection to us today. But I think that speaks to the gap, the culture gap, that still exists between Northerners and Southerners, that we still, even after 150 years, have not gotten our hands entirely around the meaning of what happened as a result of this event called the American Civil War. Hmm. Fascinating. I really appreciate the conversation today, Professor Gelzo. Um, thank you for allowing me to ask you some questions about this wonderful book. And um, just cannot wait uh, to hear your lecture on August the 9th and certainly look forward to that date with great anticipation. That will be a great event, John. It's been wonderful to talk to you. And I want to remind our listeners you can go and check out some more work um, Professor Gelzo has, has done and is working on currently at his website, which is at www.allengelzo.com. And thank you so much to the Acton Institute for hosting this podcast and uh, Radio uh, Free Acton. And uh, that's going to conclude our interview. Thank you so much. As one of only two presidents to have never formally joined a church, people have wondered just how much Abraham Lincoln himself was under God when he said that the United States should consider itself as such as it strove for a new birth of freedom. However, the Civil War shifted the ground decisively under Lincoln's feet. In the cauldron of war, he discovered that God was not merely a remote force or a faceless universal power, but a personal, intelligent, and willing God who intervened in the affairs of men to direct them in ways that they could not even begin to imagine. Join us on August 9 in Grand Rapids to hear Alan Gelzo, the Henry R. Luce Professor of the Civil War Era at Gettysburg College, on Abraham Lincoln's Moral Constitution. You can register for this event at acton.org events. I've decided to keep a journal to set down all my thoughts and the simple events of my day. I will keep this diary for one year. 
and at the end of that time, it will be destroyed. I encouraged my son to enlist. It was a family tradition. Six months later, he was dead in Iraq. I was lost. My son's the reading of the Lord. Praise be God. Hello, and welcome to the Upstream segment of Radio Free Acton's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and today we're going to be talking about the new Paul Schrader film, First Reformed. Schrader, read, or listeners might be aware, was the screenwriter of Taxi Driver, The Yakuza, Raging Bull, and The Last Temptation of the Christ. He's also directed such films as Affliction, Autofocus, Dominion, Prequel to the Exorcist, Blue Collar, American Gigolo, many, many more. Schrader was raised Calvinist and attended Calvin College in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is where we are recording this podcast, the headquarters for the Acton Institute. And his new movie, First Reform, features Ethan Hawke as an alcoholic and perhaps cancerous pastor who has lost his son to war and his wife to a subsequent divorce because the pastor encouraged his son to enlist. So the word despair gets tossed around quite a bit. There's a lot of uh, existential despair here and anguish and Facing his own personal anguish in a minuscule congregation that seems to be depleting rapidly, the pastor struggles to recognize life's deeper meaning, whether it's environmentalism, human connection, or religious faith. So I'm going to turn this conversation over to far more knowledgeable individuals than myself, and we're going to talk to Robert H. Nelson, who is professor at the School of Public Policy of the University of Maryland and is a senior fellow of the Independent Institute. And Jordan Ballard really needs no introduction. He is uh, familiar enough with upstream audiences, and uh, he is basically Acton's go-to polymath on matters both aesthetic and theological. Jordan wrote a, a very interesting review uh, and you quote Robert Nelson, and which prompted me to contact Bob to uh, kind of weigh in on this. So I'm going to turn this over to the you two gentlemen because uh, you you can thrash it out and maybe explain what this movie really portends and give us your your, your critical insights. Well, it is a, it is a film that um, sparks a lot of uh, reflection, and it's it's a film that sticks with you for a while and gives you a lot to think about. So it's one of those films where, you know, the ending comes and you're sitting, you're sitting there not knowing quite sure what to think, but there's a lot to think about. And one of the things I thought about is I really want to know what Bob Nelson has to say about this film, because um, there's these, there's this kind of clear, clear conflicts between economic interests and environmental concern and stewardship. Um, The whole thing is in a way drenched in faith but it's a faith that's uh, that's got this this deep uh, doubt to it, or at least questing. Um, there's a mystic- mysticism to it as well. So there are a lot of layers to this film. You know, in that review, I, I, I sort of make the argument that what's happening with uh, Ernst Toller, the Reverend, is is a uh, as as I as he, as the quote you said, it, it's a kind of a deformation from classical Christian faith. Um, and I think you can see that in some of the behavior and what he decides to do in the latter latter parts of the film. Um, but it is really a rich mix of all of these kinds of themes. And, and um, so, Bob, I, you know, what, what, what are some of your reactions? Um, 
Are you glad that I name dropped you and referenced you? I mean, it seemed like a film. Yeah, well, for your no, I'm, 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 I'm a typical uh, author. <laughs> <laughs> Never going to complain about being mentioned. And uh, the uh, and I think that the film, you know, the film brings up a whole set of issues that I've been writing about, mm -hmm. uh, really going back to uh, as far back as 1991. When I wrote another book called "Reaching for Heaven on Earth: A Theological Meaning of Economics," and uh, one of my uh, themes throughout all this writing has been that the idea of economic progress based on science and technology has been the dominant, uh, you know, secular religion for, since the Enlightenment in, in many different forms. Uh, but now we're seeing a re rebellion against that, and uh, in which all of these things that were supposedly going to save us are possibly going to create hell on earth. Mm -hmm. And that's somewhat about what this movie is about. And thinking about that question, uh, I and I've uh, all, you know for a long time been saying that environmentalism, at least in this. Uh, pessimistic form uh, about progress and all of the good things it's going to bring. Uh, it, it has a very powerful Calvinist element to it. So I was actually very interested that I didn't know until the introduction just now uh, that Schrader had gone to Calvin College. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that to me was extremely interesting. So I think that you can uh, you know, you could look at this movie as being about what it means uh, to have what's happening to Calvinism, and what is what happens when it takes on secular, secularized forms, as in environmentalism, uh, and uh, where does that leave people? And so, I think that's a. a that, in some ways, is the fundamental question of the movie. Right, I think that's right. So we could talk about some of the main characters. I mean, in a way, there's no secular character in this film, except perhaps for Michael, which um, you mentioned. He's So there's a, a, a couple of different sets of relationships that are really important. They all center around this pastor of First Reformed, this church in uh, upstate New York, Reverend Ernst Toller. And there's a young couple, Mary and Michael, Michael is an environmental activist, would be one way of describing him, uh, a radical environmental activist. He's married to his wife, Mary, and um, he's really on the fringes of the church. It's Mary who initiates this relationship with, with Reverend Toller, who is not used to that sort of thing. He's used to preaching, it seems like, on Sunday mornings and kind of getting through the week. There's this relationship with a larger church that is the sponsor of First Reformed, uh, a sort of a megachurch. Um, that puts up all the money and takes care of the finances. And the first thing Toller wants to do when she comes to him with a pastoral concern is hand them, hand them over to this abundant life church, which is the one that takes care of him too. And so it's really strange for him to have to do a home visit and speak to somebody about spiritual matters. But Michael does, I think really represent a, a much more kind of a purely secular well, approach in this Well, the thing is that Toller starts off, you know, Maybe you know on, on more traditional religious grounds, although he's having a lot of doubts and it's not kind of, and it's nobody's coming to his church, et cetera. But by the end, he's not that far from Michael, and in fact is on the verge of committing suicide himself. And uh, so, 
but I would say that in that, in, in, to me, Michael, in some ways, is is the yeah the, is the center of what I was just talking about, which is the what happens to Calvinism um, when it becomes an implicit or secular religion. There are various terms that people uh, have used. I've I've sometimes I just I I wrote a paper actually. A, about this form of environmentalism called Calvinism without God. And uh, so the, a thesis that has actually been rather, not common, but is, is, been, is out there in the, in the literature, including the writings of William Cronin, who is our, one of our leading writers about environmental matters, is that the logic of Calvinism without God could easily take you to uh, despair and even suicide, and so it's not that Michael is pathological. In some ways, he may be thinking too logically, and that at least given the precepts of a, of a Calvinism without God, a Cal, I mean Calvinism portrayed human existence in very dire terms, uh, you know, totally corrupt, and we find that now. A lot of environmentalists, surprisingly many, have described human beings as the cancer of the earth. I mean, people have literally argued that, uh, you know, one even one respectable, you know, Texas uh, scientist said, "What we need is a, you know, is a is a good uh, epidemic, and uh, the more the people go, the better." And in that sense, you could say Michael wasn't waiting for the epidemic. And uh, and then and then Toller seems to be coming in the end seems to be coming around to that same perspective. But then he's saved by Mary. Well, one of the one of the things that you get from the film um, and the style that that Schrader uses is you know we can assume, and I think the the viewers are are meant to assume that there is more of a kind of a traditional perspective that Toller is is uh representing at the beginning of the film but i mean when you look back we don't know what Toller was you know where he was where he started um and how far of a move it actually was as the film develops is he just is he is he totally is he drifting you know and then he he finds a true believer in something and then he realizes that he needs he's looking for faith and he finds what a secular form of it in michael things in our uh, characteristic of our time is people who start off maybe you know as fairly um, committed Christians, or but as time goes by, and this may happen more in their late teens or early twenties than at Toller's age, they lo- begin to lose their traditional Christian faith. And um, so, what do they do? You know, they they gravitate towards. Uh, well, in our day and time right now, the, the most popular place to gravitate to if you're looking for religion, and, but you've lost it in its traditional forms, is environmentalism. Well, one of the, so one of the other authors, if you could call him that, that I thought of in, the, in light of this film was Pope Francis. So, you know, a corollary to some of the issues you've just been talking about is, you know, there's certainly a, a regard for the created order that is part of and parcel of traditional Christian teaching, whether Roman Catholic or Reformed or, or Protestant right. generally. Um, and you could ask, well, how, f- what forms should that take? And this is one of the things that Toller seems to be struggling with is, you know, as a Christian, I should be caring about the environment. And this is the sort of path that leads him down to embracing much more of a Michael's uh, perspective. I mean, what, 
one of the interesting things about Francis is that he shares, I mean, he's obviously not a Calvinist, right. but there are certain elements, though, which overlap in, in his negative writings about the market and capitalism and... Well, his diagnosis of our, of, our, uh, of our current situation. So, you know, there's quotes that come seemingly every other week from the Vatican, but uh, about the negative, not just the market, but the, the, the state of the world, the state right, of the created exactly. order. Right, exactly. That's very much like uh, contemporary environmentalism in the United States, but minus the Catholic note, grace notes that surround it when, uh, when Francis expresses that point of view. You have to have our environment, our relationship with the created order, also in the context of the of a right understanding of our relationship with each other, and with God. And so those those, those that complex of relationships is is on display here in First Reformed. I'm not sure it's a it's a, it, it, I mean it's instructive at certain levels. I'm not sure it's um, it's something to emulate in I, any way or. Well, I would say it's one playing out. Mm. Uh, in you know, in Schrader's mind, and I'm not, I wouldn't say he actually is right. all that <laughs> aware of all the full tensions that he's dealing with, but he does a good job of presenting them, at least in what you could call one case study. Well, gentlemen, this has been a fascinating conversation. Let's wrap it up, and, and I'd like to ask each one of you whether you would recommend this film, uh, considering the fact that Schrader is author of a film on transcendent film, and there's obviously a lot of uh, foreign films that have influenced his career over the past 40, 50 years. So, uh, and the, considering that one of the predominant themes in the movie is, will God forgive us for what we've done? Well, I mean, it's a thought-provoking film, so I can definitely recommend it on that level. It captures a lot of these um, salient threads of the dynamics of our contemporary culture, um, the sources of fundamentalism and what you could call jihadism, both within religious belief and secularized forms of that. So on that level, I can recommend it for people who are interested in those sorts of things. I, you know, you, you said earlier, Bruce, he makes films not for, for popular audiences. So on that level, I certainly would not recommend it for just, you know, average film moviegoers who want to, you know, be entertained or have something even deep, even to think about. Um, but for people who are really interested in exploring these issues and a version a, a telling of them it's 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 a the, the film is admirable in serving that purpose for sure and how about you bob well yeah i i would pretty much agree with that i would say that you know as as, as i've been saying it gets at some really fundamental questions for our time and it's a cinematographer you know it's it's a, as a movie it's a very well done movie for sure. yeah i agree well, gentlemen, I'd like to thank you very much for coming in and giving us your insights on a very thought-provoking film. Robert Nelson is professor at the School of Public Policy of the University of Maryland and a senior fellow of the Independent Institute. And Jordan Ballard, as I said before, really needs no introduction. And I really want to thank you so much for coming in and discussing Paul Schrader's latest film, First Reformed. And for Upstream this week, I'm Bruce Edward Walker, and we'll talk to you soon. with that, we've come to the end of another episode. Thank you so much for listening today. We want to hear from you. To let us know what you think of today's episode, you can call us at 888-705-4180, or you can email us at rfa at acton.org. If you want to learn more about the Acton Institute and what we do, 
visit our website at actonacton.org, where there's lots to explore, including daily articles, upcoming events, and more. Lastly, if you like what you hear on Radio Free Acton, don't forget to give us a rating on iTunes. This episode is produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore. 